Sat Nam, I'm Guru Pakarmakar. Guru Singh and I travel the world, loving to meet an ever-growing global community. We are appreciative of your vital role on this planet, for it is your willingness to be here and listen that calls forth wisdom, that activates our collective voice in service. Your questions bring forth the answers. For a wealth of information about who we are and what we do, please visit gurusingh.com. Bless you. Satnam. Life is about interacting in this world successfully and then achieving a highest state of consciousness. Centuries ago, it was just about achieving a highest state of consciousness. Because when you were dedicating your life to that, you disappeared from the world. You went and lived as a renunciate. You renounced the world. With seven billion people, it's not long, it's no longer possible. And besides, it doesn't promote consciousness because it's like you hide once you achieve a certain level of awareness, which is a very seductive thing. Because once you achieve a certain level of awareness, your awareness is constantly showing you how wholeheartedly immature the world is. How dedicated to its immaturity. How marketing and social standards thrive on the immaturity of awareness. And so in our interaction, we have developed defense mechanisms that are the things that we have to undo, the things that we have to unravel as we increase our awareness. This is not a pleasant process because as we unravel those defense mechanisms, they leave us what is called defenseless, vulnerable. So there's a, a tertiary, a third skill that we must learn as we're defenseless and vulnerable because we've given up our defense mechanisms and increased our awareness, the non-attachment becomes more important. And a battle takes place. Because we're attached to our pain, that's what creates it. 
physical, emotional, mental pain. Existential pain is created by your attachment to it as it's passing through you. And as you attach to that pain, you become convinced that that pain is important to your identity. Because more than telling you what it is, it tells you what you're not. And we learn that before we learn any other way of establishing an identity. It's called the terrible twos. And the most popular word in the terrible twos is no. Said with emphasis, no. And what that word does is that word enables us to tell the world around us what we are not. And by the process of elimination, by telling the world around us what we are not, we begin to establish what we are. Some people live in that, let me rephrase, most people live in that state throughout their life. That they're constantly demonstrating who they are by indicating who they're not. That life is usually a life of conflict. Because in a social setting, the way you establish who you're not is by criticizing others that are demonstrating that. Why would you want to give that up? How could you possibly imagine giving that up when it establishes your identity? Well, you can't unless you're willing to surrender your identity. Unless you have enough faith, which has no object, that if you surrender your identity, you will still be identifiable. Because this is a huge fear. This is the fear of territory. Because identity is a territory. It's a territory more than the <clears throat> square footage of your property that you live on. It's an ultimate territory. The this is who I am territory. And as long as you hold firmly to this is who I am, and there are no question, there are all the righteous reasons for holding firmly to that identity. But as long as you hold firmly to that identity, you will not be able to become who you truly are. Because even the most noble of identities is not even close to the nobility of who you are. It reminds me of the story of the person who's hanging from a pole, like a gymnast, in the pitch black, feet dangling. The person doesn't know how they got there, but they definitely know that they are there. 
because they're holding on for dear life. And a voice comes through the darkness. Release the pole. And the response is, you got to be kidding. This is the only thing that I know. And the voice repeats, release the pole. And the response is even more emphatic. There is no way that I will release this pole. You've got to be crazy to ask me to do that. And the light goes on. And the pole, he is looking up, she is looking up, is floating in space. And he or she's feet are dangling three inches from the ground. That's the irony of our identity. We hold on to this definition of who we are. But don't you realize that who you are is not a definition. Who you are is an experience. You can establish the greatest identity via your commitment to experiencing your greatest worth, your greatest value. As you go through life, if your core commitment is to experience in all circumstances your greatest value, you will not be able to be defined in words, not even your own words. You will always be accommodating the moment as the greatest asset to that moment. And what you will experience in that moment is the full expression of that moment. And when you allow yourself to experience the full expression of any moment, you don't get hung up on the details because the full expression of any moment has details that are light-filled and shadow that creates perspective. But if you're in that state of establishing your identity, you will start to pick on the shadows of every moment See, it's happening again. You told me it wouldn't. See, happening again. You're fixating. And you can't let it go because it's the only thing that you know. But it's floating in space. That fixation is floating in space. There's no reality to it except that it contributes to the total picture. I look at you, you look at me. We define each other by the space that we're not. 
I define you by the space that's all around you. That appears that your body stops right here. Because if I don't define you by what you're not, I can't see what I think you are. But what if you're omniscient? What if you're everything? What if the core of your consciousness actually isn't what you're defining your experience to be? Because you're not experiencing your experience. You're defining your experience in every moment. You're telling yourself what you're experiencing instead of experiencing it. Because if you let go of the rod of your definition, you're concerned that you will fall endlessly. Now that would be pretty cool. Falling endlessly. I don't know if you've ever jumped out of an airplane, but my son forced me to once. Well, I, I got to take that back. He didn't force me to, but when you're a father of a son and the, son, the son's girlfriend goes, are you jumping? What do you go? No, I'm chicken. They tricked me to get me to the drop zone, but... But the first thing you feel when you exit that plane, forget what you felt before you exited. You had all kinds of imaginations about how you were going to splat. <laughs> but the moment you exit that plane for about 10 seconds at 125 miles an hour straight down, you get the sensation of, this is irreversible. And to experience anything that is irreversible is unexplainable. Because we always start explaining the way we're going to get out of a tight spot. But this is a tight spot that isn't tight. There's nothing in it. That's its problem. And after you've gone through that scenario, you're still hurtling at 125 miles an hour, straight towards the ground. But as you look down, it doesn't appear that way at all. It appears that the earth is hurtling towards you. It's called ground rush. And it is unexplainable. So you just get lost in the experience, which is... what we are supposed to be doing in life itself. Become lost in the experience of the moment unless the moment is driving your car or operating a piece of equipment like a blender. When you get lost in the moment of blending your smoothie, usually your kitchen wears your smoothie. Because one part of the process is usually lost in the moment. But any time that you can actually be like in a conversation, you see what we do
if you're to look from the very top, so this is going to be completely out of perspective, but if we were to look at the top of a person's head, a person is going to converge, and that's what happens when we first learn to speak. We learn to converge our eyes, to objectify our world. We actually learn it when we first start to manipulate. Man and man. The man and the man. The hands and the brain come out of the same event as an embryo. And manipulate means literally to connect the puzzle of your brain and your hands. To manip manipulate. Hmm? When we learn to manipulate, we learn to objectify our surroundings so that I could pick up that cup, so that, <laughs> so that I could pick up that pen. Because if I can't, I'm going to smash my fingers or I'm going to reach in thin air. Because if I don't converge my vision, I don't have access to the third dimension. The third dimension is our depth of perception. So I converge my vision. And when I look across the room, my eyes don't converge as much as if I look here. When I look here, my eyes converge very deeply. Now, here's what happens. Usually, when a person looks at another person, they don't actually see the person. They converge at a point that reminds them of that person. And it's actually a point of description, of definition. So when I look at you, I remember when I've seen you before, or I look at you and I remember that I haven't seen you before, according to my mental system. So if I look at you and I've seen you before, I'll look at a picture of you that I store in myself that reminds me of what happened when I saw you before. And that's why it's very hard to live down a reputation. What does it say, is it in the Bible that a prophet, or is it, is it in some other form that's communicating about the Bible, but a prophet is not recognized in their own town, right? Because, you know, the prophet, you know, forget you're a prophet, okay? You go back home to your hometown, to all of your friends and neighbors that knew you when you were just this big, and a snot, and now you're a yogi master and they see you as a snot. But if you go to a new town and you get a flyer put on the wall, there's a yogi master in town, then they see you as that flyer. Right? What this does is not so much identifies the object as it identifies that which is perceiving the object. So as long as I keep each of you in the position that I've always known you as, I am who I am. Thank you. That is exactly the same sound that our daughter's iPhone has when a text comes in. And I love that sound. 
And our dogs come to a whistle, and when she's around our dogs, and that phone is bringing in text, you should see our dogs running around trying to find the phone. If you could release the need for you not only to identify the other person, but most importantly to identify yourself, what you would actually do is you would experience the total person. And completely experience yourself, but not be able to define or describe yourself. It's a busy morning. I don't mind. Now, one of the keys to this is the pituitary gland, which is called the third eye, which sits just above the hypothalamus in the, mid, in, in the center of the brain, just above the hypothalamus, which is part of the limbic system. And the hypothalamus is what you actually can access through chanting. It's the reason we chant, because the hypothalamus sits above the roof of the mouth, the dome of the mouth, which corresponds to the dome of the head, which corresponds to the dome of the atmosphere, which corresponds to the dome of the universe. <laughs> Excuse me. The more your eyes converge, the less, if you're in, in, in the experience of an object out there, the less you actually experience the object and the more you experience your thoughts. Because back here is the optical cortex. When you converge your vision you use these optical nerves that go straight back. When you don't converge your vision, you use the converging optical nerves which cross at the pituitary gland and activate it. Not as the master gland that it is, but at the third eye that it's capable of becoming. Because when it operates as a third eye, what it does is it puts out a message to all of your glands and organs because that's what it's in charge of. And it goes, everything is totally safe beyond safety. And your entire system relaxes and absorbs the moment. When your entire system relaxes and absorbs the moment, it's called massive intuition. And you suddenly know K-N-O-W, know what the moment is, where the moment came from, and where the moment is going to. You know everything about the moment in that moment of relaxation. And the key is don't react. Don't react to that knowledge. Because the moment you relax, react to that knowledge, you are identified again. And the moment you identify yourself, you have to support and protect yourself. The moment you have to support and protect yourself, you have to defend yourself. The moment you have to defend yourself, the whole system locks you out of that knowledge. Because the two things cannot coexist. You cannot be totally open 
and identified at the same time. That's why this common saying when somebody is having a religious or spiritual experience is, can I have a, can I have a witness because they're not witnessing themselves. They have no idea who they are in that moment. Performers can get to that place where they completely lose themselves, and that's when you experience the greatest performance. Scary. The performer freaks out and then becomes the rehearsed performer. But on occasion, and what do they say on those occasions? The performer had a lot of soul. Or heart. And there's always that expression, heart and soul. Yeah, heart and soul. That's all from that reality, which is actually what we might want to say, a non-reality. Because huh? it's, it's definitely non-three-dimensional. Definitely is timeless, so it's non-four-dimensional. The more I converge my vision, the less of the experience I actually experience, and the more I'm just staying with my definition, my story. We've all been that person and we've all met those people, correct? We've all been that person who just sticks with our story and we've all met those people who just stick with their story. And we've met them and we've looked at them. And Do you remember looking at somebody and you're going, you're not looking at me. Don't you remember that experience of being in someone's presence that is not actually, and I don't mean they're looking away. They can be looking straight at you, but they're not looking at you. Is that clear? Don't you have? And it's not like you're seeing the angle of their eyes. It's like you're not seeing the light in their eyes which means that you're not seeing through the lens of their eyes into the optical nerve of their eyes because they're actually not looking at you. They might be looking an inch in front of you or three inches in front of you or five inches in front of you. It's not like a big amount where they've got their eyes crossed and it's just completely obvious in three dimensions. But they're looking at an opinion that they have of you. Or you're looking at an opinion that you have of them. My wife and I have played with this throughout our marriage. I'll just notify her. I'll say, sweetie, you're not my favorite today, so watch out. I'm not responsible for this because I'm out of character. And we've learned to communicate this way because we've, we've caught ourselves being in that place where I'm not seeing her in this moment. I'm seeing an opinion that I have of her that was established firmly three days ago <laughs> when I was absolutely correct and she was absolutely wrong but was yet unwilling to admit it. 
I admit it. <laughs> yeah. And that is why Jews and Muslims and Christians and Hindus and all of these different religious forms and Russians and Americans and Mexicans and Texans and all of these geographical forms have attitudes and opinions of each other that's not always conducive to a love fest. Because we're not seeing each other. We're not actually experiencing each other. What we're doing is we're opining on each other. We're stuck in our opinion. And we're refusing to use a lifeline or call a friend. Yeah? So, are we really going to cause peace on earth? Are we really going to cause understanding by just dancing around and pointing out different opinions that we can have? Here's another way that you cannot see each other. Good idea, huh? At least we could all, maybe we could find peace if we could all agree on the way in which we don't see each other then we could have seven billion ways of not finding peace. Our task is not to correct that. It's to correct this. Which is why the Buddha said, be the change you want to see in the world. And Gandhi used it. Be the change you want to see in the world. Did you put on your clothes this morning? When you put them on, did you think about the person that grew the fabric? Did you think about the person that harvested that fabric, that, that material? Did you think about the person that spun the thread? No. Or the person that wove the cloth? Or the person that cut the garment and sewed the garment? Or the person that carried the garment from where it was manufactured to where it would be delivered to you? Several people, right? In the chain. This is what Gandhi was talking about when he was talking about it takes a village, which again someone else used, or many have used. that our lives are supported by many people. When you eat your salad, who grew the arugula, the lettuce, the spinach, if you so choose the tomato? Whose olive tree produced the olives? And how did all of that arrive in your bowl? How many people are sitting in your bowl? How many people are you wearing on your body? 
if we begin to have this holistic view, we don't have to think of these things as individuals, but we have a sensation of these things as a collective. And the sensation that is most notable that we can have as a collective is the sensation of appreciation. A without pre, meaning prior, seation, sensation. Without a prior sensation, you are able to experience this moment. Only without a prior sensation. But with a prior sensation, you no longer appreciate. You have appreciation. You have not appreciation. You have appreciation. You have a presense. And when you have a presense of the moment, you do not have a presence in the moment. Words. Words are key to the mind. Very, very important to teach children etymology. What is a word? Where does that word come from? What is that word in different languages? And what is that expression that you are expressing? When you express something towards something, is it defining you or is it appreciating it? This is really important because this is what we as humans must master and by example then teach. And more importantly than anything, not teach those who are hardened in a polarized position. Let that be. Let that be polarized. It's getting funnier and funnier. It really is. I think that the comedy channel will be replaced by C-SPAN eventually. And C-SPAN too. If you want to see real comedy, you turn on those two channels. And if you want to see just traditional comedy, you turn on Comedy Central or something like that. But that's just the nature of nature, isn't it? You can ultimately cry so hard that you start laughing. Because emotions are just a circle. Open yourself. Because by opening up your senses to experience the moment, you find that suddenly your essences, the senses beyond your senses, begin to communicate to you. And you have these, what might be called epiphanies. You have these insights. You have this messaging that begins to arrive, actually, in the form of the syllables that yogis and rishis for thousands of years produced into mantras. Because mantras are just the precursors to words. 
They're just the... Namadaya, Namastaya. Infinity bowed and created earth. Hmm. So when you, when, you, when you say a mantra, there's a link between the meaning of the mantra and the formation. So the meaning formed the syllables, therefore the syllables can invoke the meaning. That which becomes is both the becomed, new word, and its source. At any point in the river, the river wants to reach the ocean. But at every moment, the river is both at its source, at that point, and at the ocean. When you experience the full experience, metaphorically you are experiencing the whole river. So you are at the source and the ocean, which continue because the source and the ocean, the ocean evaporates into what becomes its source. And it's just a infinite circle with no beginning and no end. That is where your awareness of this moment is at its most undescribable best. Don't drive under the influence. But thrive under the influence. Was it okay? I just had to break your character because you were looking too awestruck, you know? It's like, <laughs> it reminds me of the birdie on the wire, you know? It never looks at its buddy and goes, how was that? <laughs> just, it, it, nature, human nature is not natural. Nature is natural. You know, human nature is this process that we have to work our way out of. We think we're the highest, but it's probably a polarity view. <laughs> Long and deep breathing. Doesn't the most insecure always try to secure the moment? Huh? <laughs> human beings. <laughs> it's like we went through 8.4 million lifetimes pre-human lifetimes and then we got thrown into this apparatus that like has no connection with anything and it was like figure it out right and we have to use all of these 84,000 human incarnations to do just that to figure it out
And when that finally comes, it is so ridiculous that all we want to do is run to the hills and enjoy it. And now we're being given the assignment that you can't run away at all. You have to share it with everyone that you meet. Yeah? <laughs> and pay your mortgage. <laughs> and your car. And your electricity. It's so beautiful. Bless you for joining us. Visit gurusing.com for an ever-expanding archive of lectures, videos, yoga sets, meditations, and more.